It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. You can type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Well, the 60th season of The Nature of Things premiered on Friday, November 6th on CBC and the free CBC Gem streaming service with a new documentary entitled Rebellion, which captures a generation fighting back for the future of the planet. And activists such as Greta Thunberg lead the way and across the globe, young people have been taking to the streets. With me here on the show, I am very happy to welcome Mr. David Suzuki, the host of The Nature of Things. Mr. Suzuki, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The Rebellion, uh, I, of course, I had a chance to, to see this, and I'm just wondering, you know, one of the things that, that came to me because of the fact that you've been looking at this for such a long time and following these kind of stories about the environment. You know, scientists have been selling, telling us about the planet for 30 years, 40 years. What do you think that scientists feel at this point in time about where we are and and the fact that nothing has been really moving forward? Well, I think pretty uh, pretty frustrated. I, I just want you to remind you that in 1988, there was a major conference of climatologists and politicians and activists in Toronto. Mm. And uh, the, the conference was opened by Brian Mulroney, the Prime Minister of Canada. Mm. He was followed by Gro Harlem Brundtland, the Prime Minister of Norway, and they were followed by Jim Hansen, the climatologist who had said in, in uh, Congress in the United States that the heat wave they were experiencing then in 1988 was, he was pretty sure, caused by human activity and, and greenhouse gas emissions. So this is a big conference kicked off by politicians and leading the scientists. At the end of the conference, the, um, uh, the delegates released uh, a press release that said hum human beings are uh, undergoing um, an experiment with the only home we uh, we have mm. and uh, called and they said the threat of global warming was second only to all-out nuclear war and they called for a 20 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years that was it that was the urgent call they gave a target. If we had taken it seriously and done it, we wouldn't have the problem that we have now. But nothing was done. And, you know, that is the really discouraging thing, that the scientists had reached that point of, of uh, uh, agreement and the, on the danger and had got politicians to uh, uh, recognize that there was a target that we should be aiming at. Nothing was done on that. And the reason is it made no political sense. Mm -hmm. Study after study, one in, in Australia, one in Sweden, several studies in the United States and a study in Canada showed that that target could be reached, that there would be a net savings in Canada of over $100 billion if we reach that target and human health would be much better. The, that never got done. Why? because it made no political sense to do it. In order to achieve that, 
there had to be a spending of tens of billions of dollars immediately. Mm. And any prime minister or any politician knew they would take a beating led by the fossil fuel industry in Alberta. If they were to say, we're going to spend all this money to reduce our emissions, they would take a beating. And in achieving the goal 15 years later, the prime minister knew he wouldn't be in office by then. Mm. So somebody else, maybe even a different party, would be able to say, hey, look, we achieved this huge savings in money and we've reached the target and we're uh, in better health. So it made no political sense to do the right thing. And that, I think, is the disappointment. We had 10 years of a Harper government in which there was a total effort to deny discussing climate change, indeed to suppress government scientists from talking about climate change as an issue. And uh, the prime minister himself, Harper, said uh, doing something about climate change is crazy economics. It'll destroy the economy. And so when we got a new political regime, wow, you know, isn't that great? He went straight to Paris, said Canada's back, announced that we're signing the treaty there to keep temperature rising uh, one and a half to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, saying we should try to keep it closer to 1.5. He was absolutely right. And we celebrated. And then what did he do? A couple of years later, he bought a pipeline. And you're going, what? What the heck is going on? Why did he buy a pipeline? It was mm. purely political. He had to try to show Alberta that he still cared about the Alberta and the fossil fuel industry. And he used the most contrived reason for buying a pipeline. We have to increase the output from the tar sands in Alberta through the added pipeline so that we could get generate the revenue to afford to reduce our emissions. Now, you tell me how that makes any bloody sense. He invested $6 billion, which could have been used immediately for all of the things that we need to do, like public transit and retrofitting houses and installing solar panels, all of that stuff. But instead, you jack up our emissions in order to afford to reduce our emissions. Pure politics. It doesn't make any sense. And that, I think from the standpoint of science, is really discouraging, especially when you see what's going on to the south of us. At least Canada has taken the science seriously, at least after Harper uh, was out of office. But in the United States, you have a government that really, you know, look at the way that the government has dealt with the COVID crisis. Mm. The experts, the medical experts, were telling us this is serious. It's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people. This is what we can do to avoid that. And uh, I don't know what was motivating the president of the United States, but it certainly wasn't paying any attention to the science. And um, that, I think, is the discouraging thing that he, uh, Trump refers to climate change as a hoax says that it's uh, generated by China. I mean, as a scientist, I feel really disappointed that science isn't taken seriously. And, you know, if you don't listen to the science, then what do we do? We pay attention to what the Bible says or what the Quran says or what crazy websites like QAnon. Is this like, what the hell? How are we going to base our decisions and we're, we've reached a crisis point where it's taking children to say, look, you're destroying my future.
Mm. Well, with that, exactly. I mean, that's how you, you start the, the film Rebellion. We see Greta Thunberg sitting uh, outside by herself with uh, her, her sign. And, um, it, it, you know, her whole comment, that very simple comment of hers, why bother going to school if there's no future? If I'm not going to have a, a future, why bother learning anything? It, it really is a simple but very striking comment, isn't it? And it's true. Mm. What she's saying is absolutely true because she says, I listen to the science. Mm. And the scientists are telling me we're heading towards a future that where I won't be around. I don't have a future. So that's why she began her strike to say, look, do something about mm. this. Because otherwise, why should I go to school? I don't have a future. And the power of that is that you couldn't accuse her, although the right wing has tried to accuse her, of having a hidden agenda. (laughs) She was just speaking the truth and asking, take the science seriously and act on it. And, you know, she's gone to Davos. She's gone to the UN. She's gone to all kinds of places in the Politicians are saying, look, we're trying, we're doing our best. And she says it very simply. Don't tell me all the things that we're doing, you're doing. Don't tell me I should have hope. The emissions are still rising. Mm. Don't, you know, like, and she's just cuts, cut through all of that right. stuff. And uh, it's a very powerful message. It is. And obviously it resonated with millions of children and youth around the world. Uh, they must have been all, all thinking and feeling the same thing and wondering what, what we are doing with this planet. The real crisis is, is depression that mm. is coming from youth that see they don't have a future, but see the people that we elect to office doing nothing about it. Mm. That's And so... Uh, you know, some very good friends of mine have had to send their children, uh, teenagers, into therapy because they feel totally hopeless and depressed. And and this is uh, this is a real problem. And, you know, people like me are running around saying, look, we just don't have time. If you're not acting now, we're, we're going towards that future. And the failure of people that we elect to office to lead us is uh, very, very depressing to young people. And look at what happened. We had a new environment minister, Wilkinson, came back from COP, uh, COP, I don't know, 29 or whatever it was in Madrid last December. And what did he say? Oh, Canada, we're going for zero net zero emissions by 2050. And now Japan has said net zero by 2050. What the hell is that? That's not a commitment at all. By 2050... How many governments will have come and gone? Mm. You know, the next government could be another Harper, for God's sakes. Mm. And what do what do those commitments mean? And every polit- no politician in office today will still be in office by 2050. So who is accountable? Who is accountable for not meeting that target? A target to say we're going to be net zero by 2050 is not a commitment at all because it's not a serious target. David, the the short-term view that governments take, uh, you know, I'm wondering about the other side of this because you also mentioned the fossil fuel industry or, you know, just business, big business. I mean, you think about the plastics that are being produced and what they've done to the planet as well. What I'm getting at is we're all people, whether it's government or whether it's business and corporations, they're all run by people. 
And yeah. it, it, it seems to me that profits tie into a lot of this lack of wanting to make a move or change. Uh, certainly, like you said, it's going to cost a lot to, to make the change. But wouldn't you think that – I thought of this as when we got into to the lockdown of COVID. I thought – Everything's shutting down. What a perfect time to make a switch to greener fuels, to, you know, uh, to electric cars. What a great time to retool and, and make the change. Well, it's already happening. There is absolutely no question the revolution is happening, but it's too slow. That's the mm. problem, you know. Mm. Uh, and you, you I raise the corporate sector. The problem for me is that when profit is a driving force, then – Profit becomes everything and all of your – look, look, the corporate sector, in 1955, a man named Frank Eichard said, and I don't have the quote here, but he said basically, burning coal, oil, and gas is warming the planet, and at the rate we are going by the year 2000, it may very well be out of control by human beings. So he said, we are warming the planet by burning fossil fuels. He was the president of the American Petroleum Institute. Hmm. They knew back in the 1950s that global warming was a real issue. By the 1970s, we have the lead scientist, John Black of Exxon, saying we're burning fossil fuels is causing global warming. We've got to do something about it. Exxon knew from their own scientists in the 1970s. The American Petroleum Institute was the American counterpart of CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. It's a spokes, the mouthpiece for the uh, petroleum industry. So in 1965, Frank Eichard said it's happening and it's going to be out of control by the year 2000. By 1992... The API, American Petroleum Institute, had changed its position to say, we don't know for sure whether the, the planet is really warming up. But if it is, we don't know whether humans are the cause. So what had happened was after the uh, Frank Eichard and John Black from Exxon and all these people were saying, look, it's real, the fossil fuel industry led by Exxon has spent hundreds of billions of dollars, not millions, hundreds of billions of dollars in a campaign based on the techniques that were, were used by the fossil fuel, uh, by the tobacco industry, denial, create confusion in the minds of the public, create the idea that this is still a, a theory and the evidence isn't in, and it worked. So for all these years, the fossil fuel industry in the name of profit has been lying through their teeth and fighting any attempt to get them to reduce their emissions. And to this day, Shell and uh, BP, they're saying, oh, well, we have to start looking at the uh, prospects of renewable energy. We're investing in wind power and all that. They are still supporting the campaign to stop regulating them. So I, when you raise the issue, oh, well, what about the people that are working for the fossil fuel industry? Why are they even at the table? They're doing something that is causing the problem, and they have lied and cheated for decades to keep doing what they're doing. I just 
it astounds me that they're even at the table or a, a consideration at this point. Mm. You're listening to... Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a great pleasure to have with me on the show today, Mr. David Suzuki, the host of The Nature of Things. And it's the 60th season of The Nature of Things. It premiered on uh, Friday, November the 6th, with David's new uh, documentary uh, on The Nature of Things called Rebellion. We're talking about that. The heart of the, the issue of rebellion is, of course, the youth uh, taking, uh, taking the world by storm about what we are doing to this planet. David, one of the things you, you referred to earlier was, uh, you know, the 1980s and how long we've known this. And this is not a stranger to you. Your own daughter made a, a, a plea to get things changed many years ago, 1992, I believe. Yeah. She's an old, a woman now, mm. <laughs> mother of two and uh, still in there fighting. But, you know, she raised the money to, to take uh, her little club. She started a club called ECHO, Environmental Children's Organization. Mm. Uh, and she did that because uh, I was doing a film on the Amazon and I got to meet some indigenous leaders down there and I uh, actually went down with my family and we stayed in a, in a village deep mm. in the Amazon for two weeks. Mm. And as we were coming back out of, the, uh, out of the forest, she looked down and saw the burning and the the gold mining that was destroying the forest. And so she started a little club called hmm. Echo. Hmm. And they used to go around, you know, these are grade five girls that were going around to schools talking about why the forest is important and so on. And she then, uh, you know, raised the money to take her club down to, to Rio and got to make a speech that had quite an impact at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, and she, yeah, as a teenager, she used to say, dad, dad, is the chaos coming? The chaos is coming. She, wow. she could see way back then in mm-hmm. the, the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, we were going the wrong way. So, um, it, it, you know, the, the discouraging thing is that it's taken another Greta to yeah. another young person to come up and, basically say the same things all over again, except the world is in far greater trouble now than it was when Severn made her speech in 92. Yeah. But you, you mentioned indigenous, you went down to stay with some, some indigenous people. And I believe you also have some other connections to the indigenous population. And, and I'm wondering about this. It seems to me that, that, Everything that Indigenous people have lived for, strived for, lived lived with in harmony with the planet, living green, uh, not leaving a footprint, uh, you know, walking light on the land. But it seems to me that that is the kind of exactly the kind of science we need in order to preserve the planet. Well, it's it's not science. Indigenous knowledge is far more profound than science, hmm. and uh, that's why I'm. Uh, having a, a series of, of lectures now in, a, in we were going to have a conference in Winnipeg, but COVID knocked it out, but mm. we're doing it now by, uh, um, by Zoom, basically, mm. um, called Reconciling Ways of Knowing mm. uh, Science and Traditional Knowledge. Mm. There, and, and there are a lot of people that say traditional knowledge is it's traditional science. I say no, that's too restrictive. 
Traditional knowledge is based on thousands and thousands of years of living in place, making mistakes, mm. ob observing, learning from successes, mm. failures. Gradually, over time, people realized the the keys to to living in in balance, mm. and that's been hard won knowledge. But you know that knowledge was critical for the survival. Of people, that's why they they remember. You know, they were mostly oral societies. They remembered the history of their people and and what they learned from from living that way, and developed ceremony and rituals that allowed them to constantly remind themselves of where they belong and and what their responsibilities are. Mm. That's why, for me, certainly, uh, um, my family has worked with Indigenous people now for the last forty years. Because they are the 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 repository mm. of that way of seeing the world, mm. and it's not an accident that they've been wiped out all across the planet because the invasive the invasive uh, mindset was the the Western mindset that all came into new areas and saw uh, you know resources. Mm that saw opportunity, right. had no respect for the people that had lived there for thousands of years. They were regarded as primitive or they, they, were, they had nothing to offer. Uh, um, they, we tried to make them into copies of the dominant society. They, and the ones that are clinging to their culture and language, those are the repositories of that knowledge. It's far more profound than science. Mm. That knowledge base allowed them to live in place for thousands of years. Our, our science, you make an insight in science, and what do you do? Well, you publish a paper, you get a, a raise, or you get a promotion. I mean, your life isn't in the balance by what you do. And, and what we do through science is we see the world in little bits and pieces. We focus on, on pieces. And so we need a bigger context within which to fit the bits and pieces or fragments of information we get through science. And that's why our conference is saying reconciling these two ways. Indigenous people call this a two-eyed seeing. Mm. We see the world through two eyes, and we've got to bring them together to give right. you a single uh, image. Right. And speaking of, of Indigenous, uh, one of the youth in the film is actually uh, from, from Canada is, is Indigenous, I believe. I will say that Severn is married to an ind indigenous man, lives on reserve, and has two indigenous children. Mm. Um, you know, that change that you were talking about, uh, I've been watching a lot of documentaries uh, lately, and it does seem that that change is, is coming around. And that's why I brought, brought up the indigenous uh, idea and that science, because it seems to me that farming, uh, you know, regeneration looks like it's one of, those, one of those things that is going back to the land, much like in indigenous uh, approaches, that, that might help to, to reduce the, uh, uh, the CO2 going into the, the atmosphere, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the film and the youth. Let me just say that I sure. belong to the National Farmers Union for many years now. Mm. They are one of the more most progressive groups 
in society. They're very, very aware that farming in many ways is generating the problem, especially with cattle. Mm. Um, and they are working very hard to uh, incorporate these uh, ideas that you just mentioned so that uh, they can become a positive in the sense of the, the soil and the, mm-hmm. the plants that they grow can become a, a way of sequestering uh, carbon. So yeah. I've been very proud to be a member of the uh, National Farmers Union. Yeah, it was really en- enlightening uh, to me to see or to recognize in, uh, in some of these, these uh, documentaries I've been watching about how you know tilling tilling the land, single seed planting, all of that kind of stuff, the insecticides, all of that, and how it's just it's it's uh, um, it's turning the 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 planet into a desert, and uh, exactly. and that of course is just growing the 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 carbon that's going into the air instead of capturing it, bringing it back down. It was really uh, interesting to see how by reversing that and getting the land back to a natural state can start pulling that stuff out of the uh, out of the atmosphere and back into the ground absolutely absolutely so david the youth that you that you met and you saw in the film um, it, you know they all seem like they were so uh, of course uh, very very uh, gung ho on this idea of turning things around and it sounded like you know up until covid hit i understand earth day was going to be a huge day um, for the youth, they had so many big events planned, and then that all got uh, squashed because when, when COVID hit. Yeah, it's uh, it's very sad. Although COVID gave Mother Earth a breather, yes, uh, as we began to slow down. I think that the the thrust of youth now is what what can we do uh, when we come out of this? Mm. You know, the problem the problem with youth is they 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 shouldn't be having to do what mom and dad should be doing. Right, right. You know, they should, they're at an age where they're making new relationships, you know, they're, they're dating and mm-hmm. thinking of going to university and all of that. So, uh, and this has always been a problem. Back in the 1980s, there was a big movement across Canada called the EYA, the Environmental Youth Alliance. And all across the country, kids were joining up and being, you know, acting on environmental issues. But the the problem with it was that the kids are growing older and they drop out because they're they're finding other aspects of of their lives. You you know after that um, shooting, I've forgotten the name of the school in the states where all this oh, yeah. kids, kids were mm. slaughtered. There was that very very powerful anti gun group that grew up around that. But you know it's gone now. Uh, and with youth, the problem is going to be sustaining that that energy, recruiting younger ones to keep coming on board. But I feel that, and I've been urging, you know, we're, I'm still very much in contact with the, the youth across the country saying, look, you've got to become a political force. You've got to get mom and dad. Yep. If your mom and dad aren't ready to fight for your future, then how the hell are we going to get the rest of the world? Mom and dad have to become your warriors. Grandma and grandpa. And uncles and aunts, get all of the people that love you to come out and say, I'm for my child's future and I'm only voting for anyone or party that uh, that puts climate change at the top of your agenda. Become a voting block. If that big movement was real, and I believe it was real, then your moms and dads will make a huge voting block and then maybe we'll see some real action. 
you know, you mentioned that momentum, I guess, is what you were referring to when, when you talked about what, what the youth will do next once we come out of COVID-19. And, um, and, and you know, I have to admit, I have, uh, I have children, I have a daughter right around the age that you're talking about. And I completely understand, uh, about those issues you were talking about with youth and, um, that, Great. you know, the, the two things that are, that I agree with you on, it's, it's the climate crisis. And our youth, they, they are the future and we have to, we have to take action. David, it's been a real pleasure speaking thank with you. Thank you very much. I, I want to thank you for being on the show and, and uh, thank you for bringing all the, the things that you have done over the years to our attention. Thanks a lot. That, of course, was the voice of Mr. David Suzuki, the host of The Nature of Things. It is the 60th season of The Nature of Things and it premiered on Friday, November 6th. Uh, with Rebellion, and that is the new documentary uh, that uh, starts the season, and it is all about the youth and about the climate crisis. I, I strongly suggest you find it on uh, CBC and CBC Gem, as well as YouTube. And it's been a pleasure to have Mr. David Suzuki on the show. As I mentioned, we're going to have uh, youth from Rebellion on the show as well, so don't go away. We're going to be right back with more after this. <laughs> Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, continuing on with our coverage of the 60th season of The Nature of Things uh, and also their first premiere uh, of the season, Rebellion, Capturing a Generation, Fighting Back for the Future of Our Planet. And joining us on the show is Caitlin Starowitz. She is the co-producer uh, of the Rebellion, along with Olivia, one of the youth in the film, Wolgamuth. So, Caitlin, as I say, welcome to the show. Congratulations on this film, Rebellion. You got some some great footage of, of course, the climate crisis that was happening prior to COVID. We go back prior to COVID, when all that action was taking place. All the youth around the planet were uh, really uh, showing us that we need to do something about about this climate crisis that we find ourselves in. But you take the story and you, of course, move it into COVID. And and, and then we see uh, things that were going to happen, but because of COVID, it didn't happen. And then, of course, we see other things that happened within the COVID, the, the killing of uh, George, George Floyd. And, uh, and you get to talk with, as we know, David, uh, David Suzuki, the, the narrator, but we, you also get to talk with, uh, David talks with, uh, David Attenborough in the film as well. And you get to see some great footage from around the planet. You go to India, you're in Britain, the United States, of course, Canada. Uh, what was that like for you being involved with this production? Um, well, first of all, it was, um, a very, very inspiring production to be a part of. Um, so being a millennial myself, mm. so often I hear uh, like, oh, younger generations, millennials, uh, Gen Z, Gen Z are, um, are, are lazy, they're apathetic, they don't care about things. So it was very important for me to make this film and say, no, people are not apathetic. They care about the planet. They care about their future and they're angry that they've been left a planet that is in shambles, that we are on the brink of the collapse of biodiversity. Mm. And uh, so it was a very important uh, film for me to make. But with the um, the start of COVID and, of course, the murder of George Floyd, the important thing for me 
with that, and then as with many people, was uh, to bring it back to a point of intersectionality because climate justice is social justice. And these things are all linked. You cannot do uh, one kind of justice in a vacuum because, mm. of course, climate, uh, climate change and climate crisis affects people of color and people of the global south inordinately more. And a coronavirus also kills three and a half times more black Americans than it mm. does white Americans. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to view this within a lens of intersectionality. Um, and it was just so... Uh, Incredible to see and be part of all these people rising up, demanding change for the positive, demanding a better planet and a better system for all of us. Mm. Uh, speaking of that, we're now joined by Olivia Wolgamuth, and it's great to have her with us. You know, we were just uh, talking with Caitlin about the film itself. Uh, you're based in, uh, in in the United States, and uh, I believe are you in Washington or New York? I'm in New York. Yeah, and. You know, it was really interesting to see your involvement in the film. Um, and I understand that you're a drama uh, a student and that you've kind of taken the choice to put things on hold because of what you saw and what you heard uh, basically coming out of uh, Greta Thunberg and, and the things that she was putting forward. And, and you and, and, and so many other uh, youth and students have said, uh, you're, you're going to put those kind of dreams on hold and focus more on the climate at this time. Is, is that is that right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I graduated high school in June, and I was a theater major at LaGuardia High School in New York City. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I spent, you know, the last four years doing theater for about three hours a day during the school week. Um, and then um, around junior year, it quickly turned into that um, – all of my other time, all of the, the limited free time that I had left in the day, I was devoting to organizing and to protesting. So it's true that um, my attention really did get split and my focus shifted towards organizing and towards this um, existential threat that um, the world and our generation is facing. Mm. How did that feel to you? You know, were you you were aware of the the climate situation, but Greta really focused this for us. Greta really focused it for the youth. She really became that voice, of course, and she really made the statement: "Why bother? Why am I going to go to school if I don't have a future?" I mean, that was the message that she put out there: "Why bother doing anything if if there's no future for us?" You're saying a similar thing by saying we're putting. Our, our, our dreams on hold. I think a comment you made was about, you know, uh, unlike the generations before that might have had a family and, and you know, the, the family and the home that we were thinking of to have in the future, we're focused on the, on the climate. Yeah, I think that this is a shared sentiment among a lot of people in my generation, which is that when we picture our futures, um, we, we really don't picture careers in the traditional sense and, you know, what, what's my job going to be? What's my profession going to be? Um, because I think we just really envision ourselves continuing this fight and carrying out this fight, um, in our communities and in our daily lives and in really our lifestyles. Because the fight for climate justice and the, coinciding fights for racial justice and for social justice um those are lifelong fights um to to fight against systemic injustice and to create a new system that's free of various degrees of oppression and things um 
you know, the, that's a lifelong fight. So mm-hmm. that's what we really think about when we think about our futures. Caitlin was just saying she's a millennial as well. So this is this is very in her, in the the forefront of her her mind uh, as a co-producer on on the, the the film that we're talking about Rebellion. How, what does it feel like from a youth perspective to to know that something could have been done about this a long time ago because it's been around for a long time. Uh, decades it's been around and, and scientists have been telling us about this for a long time. How do you do you got do you feel let down by the generations before you and what do you want adults and though and the older generations to do, uh, Caitlin? Yeah, uh, I think that was very well said. I echo uh, Olivia's statements. Um, I am. I'm so angry. I'm so angry that we have been a world in absolute shambles. That we are on the brink of destruction. Literally, within 12 years, it will be too late to save anything. How did people let it get like this when the scientists have been telling us? for decades that we need to make changes and no one did anything. And largely uh, the, the fault lies with fossil fuel companies who um, created the term of a personal carbon footprint as a PR stunt to put the onus on us, the people to say like, Oh, the earth is dying because you don't recycle because you drive too much. You know what? Who is at fault is those big companies who contribute 70% of all global emissions. And th- this was a PR campaign to make it seem like it's our fault. And yes, of course, we every single person should do their part. But what we need is systematic change from the top down. We need to stop the lobbyists in government who are shilling for big fossil fuel, for big oil. We need to change that on a fundamental, systematic level. And you know what? We need it right now because tomorrow it's going to be too late. Well said. A couple of really good things in there. Now, let me ask you, you, you guys both this. You know, you've pointed out the fossil fuel. You've pointed out industry, uh, commercial industry, the, the idea of putting profits first. The thing is that everything, even the fossil fuel industry, these large corporations, uh, whoever the, and whatever they are, they are run by people. Right? It's not just some anatomical being doing this. These are people running these organizations. So, what do you what what does that tell you, or what do you think about that when you think of this this game that is being played with our our environment? That still putting profits per, first, still putting these these spins on things to twist and not face up to what needs to be done. Yes, we all know it's going to take a lot of money to change things, uh, to do it right, to get it right, but it, it has to be done one way or the other. Why keep putting it off? Um, Olivia? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of people out there that have been, whether they were corrupt or not in the first place, who have at least been corrupted by their power and by the wealth that they hold, because that's the way in which our country is structured. It's structured in our world, you know, it's structured so that the most wealthy um, have the most control and they feel maybe even rightfully so um, untouchable by the impacts of the climate crisis and they feel invincible. And, you know, I, I see a lot of sentiment from these type of people that, you know, oh, the the climate crisis isn't something that that, that they can see, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel real to them, mm-hmm. because 
to them, it, it isn't real because they have the, the mobility and the wealth to be the last to be impacted by it. Mm. So in the meantime, they continue to pursue their profit and their wealth and their power because we live in a system that rewards that. You know, we, we live in a system that heavily rewards that. Mm. Caitlin? Yes, no, I, I totally agree with Olivia. I mean, and also it's because um, we have this uh, privilege in North America that we live in this ivory tower of wealth and um, and just uh, opulence where we don't have to see the effects of our decisions. Like we also in Canada, not just the U.S., are huge polluters, huge contributors mm. to the carbon footprint. And going to India and seeing the effects of that, mm. seeing people living on open drains, mm. those are the people that are suffering because of our pollution. Mm-hmm. And so I, I suppose it's easy if you are uh, an executive at BP to, uh, when you never see those effects firsthand, to keep polluting the planet because you know what? It's out of sight. It's out of mind. And um, you know what? The global climate refugees are always going to be uh, the people that are uh, people of color, uh, BIPOC people, um, people in the global south. And we need to start opening our eyes. And as Olivia said, we need to stop putting all of the, um, all of the, the emphasis on the uh, acquire, acquiring of wealth. Mm. Because you know what? There are more important things. We can still be wealthy with green jobs. Mm-hmm. And it's just its about a systematic change. And it's hard to do, but you know what? It's necessary because it's almost too late. And if we don't have a planet, you're not going to make any money anymore. True enough. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week with me here on Moment of Truth. And we are talking about the uh, CBC uh, Nature of Things Rebellion. It's the uh, the premiere of the 60th season of The Nature of Things. And uh, Rebellion is uh, is, of course... The, the Nature of Things host, David Suzuki, and this is the first show. And with me on this show is a couple of the people that were involved. We have with us uh, Caitlin Starwitz, and she is uh, the co-producer of the show. And we also have with us Olivia Wolgamuth, and she is a student living in the United States, New York. Uh, just graduated, as she said, from high school, a, uh, a drama student, and she has put her career on hold uh, so that she can pursue the ideas of trying to do something about uh, the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. What, what do you guys think the role is of, of government and, and, and what they need to do and what they haven't done uh, if that's the case so far? Um, Caitlin? Well, the role of the government is speak for the people and the people are standing up and the people are shouting that we want a green future. We want to save the planet. We want an end to the destruction. Because quite frankly, I mean, we are irreparably damaged. And all we can do is patch these holes now. And we just need to save what we have while we still have time. We're never going to go back to a perfect planet. Mm-hmm. All we need is to fix these, 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 um, these holes and uh, we need the government to stand up and stop listening to lobbyists, to stop listening to big bis- business and listen to people who are saying we need a future. Mm. Olivia? Um, yeah, I mean, adding on to that, you know, just 
more and more, I feel like I see politicians and elected officials and just people in government positions who are so influenced by um, those people with monetary power, by the executive directors and by corporations. Um, because, you know, our, our political system is not free from that hold that wealth has in our country. Um, and, you know, like Caitlin said, the role of our politicians and our elected officials absolutely should be to listen to their constituents, listen to their people who are overwhelmingly saying that we need dramatic change and we need it right now or it will be too late. And it's already too late for a lot of what we needed to see. Mm. Um, and, you know, you know, with, with this election and with everything, with, <laughs> with um, mm -hmm. the massive polarization that we've seen continued evidence of, mm -hmm. um, I, I have lost a lot of faith in our government um, and a lot of trust that they're actually going to deliver the change that we need. And I've seen more and more people kind of, I guess, shifting their energy and focus to what we can do for our communities ourselves um, and how we can begin to make tangible change for people and our conditions right now um, mm -hmm. without waiting for our politicians to do it for us. Um, and I think that that is a balance that we're going to continue to strike to see, you know, how much can we influence our governments and expect them to give us what we need and what do we need to do for ourselves right now. Right. You know, prior to COVID-19 uh, hitting the planet, um, the the uh, momentum that was being brought forward from the youth uh, around the planet was massive. And I understand, uh, Olivia, maybe you can fill us in on this a little more, that I understand Earth Day 2020 was supposed to be a huge day. Um, there, there were all kinds of massive um, uh, um, events being planned, and then COVID-19 kind of shut all that down. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, there were organizers um, all over the country from all different organizations, um, you know, Sunrise, Extinction Rebellion, mm -hmm. Zero Hour. Um, all of these different groups were mobilizing and had been planning for Earth Day for months. Um, and it was going to be... Uh, big accumulation of, you know, a lot of the demands and actions we've been seeing over the past months and years, um, or a year leading up to Earth Day. Um, and yeah, then everything shut down. And a lot of the events were taken virtual. Um, myself and other organizers organized a lot of like virtual teach-ins and events and panels. And, you know, that was really great. And obviously not everything we hoped for. Um, but it was what this pandemic did do, and um, I may have talked about this a little bit in the documentary, but, um, you know, it forced us to put the brakes on for a second mm -hmm. and to evaluate where we were. And I can, you know, speaking for myself, I had kind of been going full steam ahead, um, organizing and protesting and participating in these actions for the past year. And then to be forced to pause and kind of assess the state of the world and also assess all of the systemic failures that were being highlighted mm. by this virus. Um, it kind of provided, I think, a lot of organizers with um, a new perspective and even a renewed sense of urgency and possibly even a renewed clarity um, 
on what had to happen next and how we needed to use our time while we had it to act. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, how, what's going to happen next and once the, the COVID-19 issue is resolved and we can get back to things and, and talk about that momentum, uh, if you think that momentum is is going to, to come back. Uh, but I do want to ask Caitlin, um, in, in the process of making Rebellion, was it your intention or, or had the, the filming finished up prior to, uh, um, say, Earth Day or COVID? Or were you planning to perhaps include more of that in, in, in Rebellion? Oh, well, um, so we had finished about 70% of the film while um, before COVID started. Right. And I came back from filming in India mm-hmm. right at the beginning of March. So mm-hmm. right at the beginning of when everything right. started going really supernova. Right. Um, and it was, it was, it was very terrifying. It was very scary. Um, and so we really had to adapt the way we made the film. We really had to do it in a more kind of rhizomatic way where we did it with individual mm. cinematographers in different, uh, mm. cities where we would be coming in through Zoom. Mm. And I think it, it, it worked out very well. And it was a very different way of filmmaking because normally I have, uh, like one set crew of cinematographer sound and we'll travel the world. And this was made by, I mean, if you see the credits, it's like double times, mm. uh, triple times <laughs> what it would be normally because we worked with so many people mm. remotely mm. so that we would not be traveling. We would not be spreading virus. Right. But I mean, just to tag on to what, uh, Olivia said, um, I think, um, one of the most, um, telling things. I mean, it was so important for us all to slow down, but one of the most important things, the messages that came out of the coronavirus is that it made us realize we have to listen to the scientists. Mm. Mm. We had politicians saying, Oh, this is a hoax. It'll be done by Easter. Mm. It's going to go away on its own. Um, don't worry about it. And the scientists were saying, no, no, this is terrible. This is going to cause uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide. And we saw that. And if anything positive can come out of this horrible pandemic, I'm hoping is that people will believe in science again because science is real. Mm. And we need to listen to these people who have spent their entire lives studying these kind of things. And the coronavirus is the result of a zoonotic disease, which is just another symptom of us exploiting the planet. So mm. I'm really hoping that it will make people believe in science again. And seeing the election numbers uh, today, I'm hoping that has been reflected. You know, uh, that comment you just made about uh, how, how it's a, sort of a symptom uh, of what we're doing to the planet, that was echoed in uh, just uh, maybe the last couple of weeks I heard uh, a news story about that very thing, that we're going to see more of this kind of thing come out uh, as, we, as we do more damage. So, yeah, well said. Um, Olivia, I want to ask you about the marches that you took part in prior to, uh, prior to COVID-19 hitting. And uh, specifically what I'm saying and why I'm asking that is this, we all thought it, was, it is youth-driven, and it was. But it looked to me from, from the marches I saw taking place, there were all uh, generations of people in there. And, and how did that feel to you to have you know, older generations of people joining in with you um, and, and supporting you? Yeah, you know, there's, um, well, for me, I will start by saying that, you know, it's, it's essential that this movement, um, continues to be intergenerate, intergenerational because, mm. you know, it is, it is an intergenerational fight. Um, as seen in the documentary, you know, there 
are so many adults who have been working their whole lives to um, to combat this crisis mm-hmm. and to ex- expose the truth about it. Um, and even if they haven't been um, met with as much success as they should have been, you know, they there are a lot of experts out there and a lot of people who have devoted their lives to this fight and um, people of my generation can absolutely learn from them. And, you know, the, the combination of my generation's kind of um, energy and urgency, because we know that we will be the most impacted and older generations um, kind of sense of lifelong experience and knowledge about what this fight actually looks like. Those two things together are, absolutely a force to be reckoned with. Um, so to know that we have those people marching with us and supporting us um, is really invaluable. And I know that we we couldn't do it without them. And, and what about your own parents? Are they on side with this? Are they supporting you? Are they uh, getting on board? Yeah, 100%. My parents really support everything I do and they <laughs> focus their energy on making what I do possible. Um, so they support me as much as they can, you know, even though they both work, um, and can't always be <laughs> on the streets mm. with me. Mm. Um, they support me from home a mm. lot and I'm really fortunate to have that. And do you think that once this is over, that the youth are going to continue the momentum and that resolve that you, that the youth showed with this prior to COVID-19 hitting? Do you think that we're going to see more of those, those protests, more of that marching, more of the attention brought back to the the climate crisis once again? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, they really never stopped, you know, at least in in New York City, um, me and my friends and co-organizers, we've been marching in the streets um, every week, multiple mm. days a week um, for, for, for racial justice mm. ever since those protests started at the end right. of May. Um, and so we never stopped, you know, we um, maybe took a little bit of a um, indoor hiatus um, mm-hmm. during those early months of quarantine, but right. we've been back, we've been back out and um, we, we have these like youth support networks we've, we've created where we make sure that no one is ever protesting alone, that everybody always has the resources and the supplies they need to be as active as they want to be. Mm. Um we, we've really joined in the fight here and, you know, the fight for racial justice and the fight for climate justice are um, inextricably linked. Mm. And I think that the momentum from these protests combined with the pre-quarantine um, momentum of the youth climate movement, I think that on the other side of this, both of those things will continue to skyrocket and we will keep fighting until we see the necessary and tangible action on these crises that we're demanding. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, Caitlin, you, you worked with your, your dad on this, uh, you know, uh, co-directing it. Um, what, what, what kind of, a, of, of um, what was that like working on this with you? What kind of support did you feel that, that he was giving you? Um, and how did that generational thing work with this film? That's a great question. So uh, this is our fir- third film we've made together. Um, but this one was very special because it was about uh, standing up in revolt. Mm. And my dad lived through the 60s, mm. uh, participating in civil rights movements, mm. in women's rights movements. And um, and uh, uh, 
just to have that all coming back, he, we would be filming together in the streets of Montreal in uh, New Delhi. And he would say, this is what it was like in the sixties. And it was just so heartening for me because I felt so connected to history, connected to him, connected mm. to protests of the past mm. because that standing up against injustice is timeless. And it was uh, a very bonding experience, but I think it really also helped the film because I had the benefit of history of all his knowledge. Uh, and then also the new take of, of my experience on this film. And it was, it was uh, priceless. Great. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you much, uh, so much for joining me on Moment of Truth and, and to sharing your views on this uh, very important topic, both uh, Caitlin Starowitz and Olivia Wolgamuth. We thank you both very much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you for talking with us. Appreciate it. You bet. Take care. You too. And they are the voices of Caitlin Starowitz and, uh, as I said, Olivia Wolgamuth, and she is a 16-year-old in New York City, uh, one of the people in the protests that have been taking place prior to COVID-19. We've been talking about the first show of the 60th season of The Nature of Things. It's called Rebellion, and you can catch that on CBC and CBC Gem, as well as, of course, on YouTube. And that is our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure to have you join us each and every day right here on Moment of truth we'll see you next time this has been moment of truth with david moses element 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 fm